Open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 17 through 24 this morning. And as you're turning there, I too, like Claudia, I want to start by asking you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a wedding. And, and maybe I'm up here as, as the pastor and the groom is, is right here with the best man and, and his groomsmen and the bridesmaids are over here and, and the groom is, is up here and he's all dressed up. His tux has been nicely pressed. His hair has been recently cut. He, he even got a manicure for the day. It's the one time I think for guys you can get a manicure. Don't tell me if you get manicures other times. I don't want to know. <laughs> it's fine if you do. I'm not judging. And there he is. He has been waiting for this day. He's been preparing for this day in so many different ways. The the last of all was physically preparing that morning, getting dressed, getting ready. The bride that morning woke up and went to the gym. She always does. She went to work out. Why should this day be any different? And she got all sweaty. On the way home, she got a call from a friend. Hey, we're over at the beach. We're playing some beach volleyball. Why don't you come? Oh, great. Yeah, I've got time. She goes to the beach. She's got on shorts and t-shirts, plays some volleyball. Now she's sweaty and dirty. She looks at her clock, her watch, and she says, oh my goodness, I've got a wedding to get to. And, and she quick throws on some sweatpants and a sweatshirt. And here we are waiting for the, the ceremony to begin. And the doors open. And there she is. In all her splendor, her hair all messy, wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt smelling like the gym, and looking like the beach. What would you do? What's that? <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture, isn't it? Because it's, it's your wedding. You should be prepared. You should long for that moment when, when the groom meets the bride and, and you've put on your best. And you can walk in, and, and I love that part of the wedding when the doors open and I watch the groom and I just watch his eyes and he sees her in all her splendor that moment. And just the look of radiant beauty on, on her and that reflected radiance in his face and it's just it's glorious. It's such a special moment. I couldn't imagine those doors being open and the groom going, oh, Really? You didn't even try. Today we're going to talk about putting on new clothes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians, this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, and scholars say, and I agree, that it was probably meant to rotate around to other churches as well. And he writes to them in the first chapter about this eternal plan, this huge plan of God in Jesus Christ to bring salvation and to bring his plan all the way from the foundation of the earth to fulfillment. He goes into chapter 2 and he talks about individual personal salvation, that we are brought, plucked from death, brought into life. And then he goes at the end of chapter 2 and he talks about how this shapes the church. We are people brought into new life. And how we interact with each other, how we interact with people even vastly different than us, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, shows the gospel. And then he goes into chapter 3 and he talks about his own personal ministry a ministry that brought him great suffering, but that he was willing to go through, able to go through, because God's grace compelled him and equipped him. 
We went into chapter 4 and we talked about how God's grace compels us and equips us to live as the church. And we looked at that last week in verses 1 through 16. And so now he issues a challenge. And he's going to start by talking about taking off the old self. Taking off the old us. Let's read. You can follow along. I want to read verses 17 through 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Paul starts off very emphatic. He really is serious about what he is saying. He says, I tell you this. This is Paul the Apostle with the authority of one who has witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. As one who's speaking to this church from a position of authority, he says, I tell you this. But then he adds something onto it. And I insist on it in the Lord. He didn't really need to add that. But I think for their sake and for our sake, it brings a lot of weight to what he is about to say. He's saying not only is what I'm about to say in line with Jesus Christ, his life and his teaching, it is foundational. If we don't understand this, we're not going to understand the gospel that he has laid out for us in the first part of Ephesians and the gospel he's going to apply in the second part of Ephesians. I'm telling you this. I insist on it in the Lord. What is it that he is insisting? You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. As Christians, I think we often want to hear and say an amen to that. Amen, Christians. Look at the world out there. We should not be like them. Look at who they are and all the awful things going on in the world. Don't be like the world. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Just back a couple paragraphs there, maybe one page in your Bible, one swipe of your finger. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are what? Gentiles. Wait a minute, in in chapter 4 he's saying, I insist on it, you don't live as the Gentiles do. In chapter 2 he says, you are Gentiles. If you go down to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Here's the weight of what Paul is saying. He's saying to these people in the church, you are part of this culture. You are from this culture. You are identified as Gentile, which simply means everybody that's not Jewish. This is who you are. Do not live any longer as who you are. Do you understand how he's challenging the very core of their identity in the world? If I were to rephrase this, I would put it this way. You Americans do not live as Americans anymore. That stings, doesn't it? Oh, that hurts our national pride. Wait a minute. I'm American. I'm proud. Paul is saying that's not your identity anymore. You are Christian. You are in Christ. That is your higher calling. There's a difference. You New Yorkers, you guys have just come. Welcome to New York. Don't live as New Yorkers. (laughs) Don't. It's not who you are. You were that. 
you're not that now. It's obviously you're just now becoming it, and then you have to unbecome it. But we'll work on that. But that's what he's saying. R- Rochesterians, it's who you are. Don't be who you are. Do you feel the sting of that? The challenge of it? This is not Paul pointing fingers at the world saying, look how awful it is. Oh, it's such a mess out there. It's him pointing fingers at the church saying, you have got to change. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. When we studied 1 Corinthians, I titled the series Saturated. And we looked at how the church in Corinth had become saturated by their culture. The thinking of the culture had made its way into the church. And we talked about how Paul, through that letter, was ringing through the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. He was ringing that church out of their cultural way of thinking. And then he was pouring in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I suggest we love to be poured into. We love for God to just pour blessings in, pour teaching in, help us along the way, give us that comfort and that strength. I don't think we love to be wrung out. And this is a wringing out sort of passage. It starts there and it challenges us to our very heart and our soul. I also think we are quick to point out the sinfulness of the world. But we are very slow to recognize and admit we are the same way. We have those same tendencies within ourselves. So my goal this morning is not to point fingers at the world. Although we will look at our culture, my goal is to challenge us and say, how are those things in our own heart, even in subtle ways? The Gentile way of living, Paul says, is due to the futility of their thinking. Throughout Scripture, this concept of futility is often used of idolatry, and it really makes sense. Think about it. Idolatry, especially in this time frame, was somebody taking a a hunk of wood or a, a chunk of rock and taking their own tools and their own skills and their own time and their own sweat and and maybe a little blood off their finger as they nick themselves and they're putting in the effort and they construct a statue that they made and then they say, you're my God. I did all the effort. I achieved this. It's all because of who I am and now I'm going to worship you and give you control of my life. That is the essence in Scripture of futility, foolishness. It's completely unreasonable to serve something that you yourself have power over and created. And Paul's saying this is the height of Gentile life. To worship, to bow down, whether actually physically or metaphorically, and to give authority to something in your life that is human-made. It is absolutely futile. But he goes on, and he says this futility then has four main problems. In verse 18, he says you're darkened in your understanding. I think we like to think that the world has a knowledge problem. And if they would just know the truth of Jesus Christ, if they could just see it, they would accept it because it's so wonderful. Scripture says it's more than that. They have a darkened problem. They they can't see clearly. This is the person stumbling around in the dark that can't accept the right path because they can't even see it. Scripture says that people, even if they could see the truth, would not be able to accept it because their understanding has been darkened. 
Another problem, he says, that they're separated from the life of God. Now, he could be talking about separated and and going to hell and and, and death and all those things that are true. He talked about them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But I think he's actually emphasizing something a little different. It includes that. But think of this story. Imagine a person wandering the streets of a city, maybe Greece, on a cold, rainy winter's evening. And they're wet through to the core. And they're starving. And they're so desperate to find food and shelter and warmth and somebody to welcome them. And they see a house. And they come up to the house. And in that house, there's a family celebrating dinner together, having dinner together. And they have a a nice roast turkey on the table, all the trimmings, this lavish meal. And there's a fire going in the fireplace. And they see that in there and they think, that's what I want. But that's not where I am. I'm out here. And I'm separated from that warmth. I'm separated from that life. I have that longing for it. It's what I need, but I'm out here. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. That the very thing that people need, that they ultimately are longing for and desire, is the very thing they are separated from. And even if they could go in, because of the darkness of their understanding, they wouldn't experience it as something wonderful and understand it as they should. This is why, quite frankly, there is a great danger in the church in simply allowing everybody to be comfortable. I get calls from time to time. Why is it that we as a church say before communion that this is only for Christians? It's because I think there's a danger in having somebody think that they are part of the family of God, think that they are saved, think that they are going to heaven, when in fact they've never actually accepted Jesus Christ. They experience all the warmth and the welcome, but they've never actually walked through the door. That's dangerous, and I will have no part of it. And if it means that we have to make a few people feel uncomfortable from time to time, we've got to uphold the truth. There is a separation that is there. He goes on to say then, they are ignorant. Because they're darkened and cannot accept the truth, because they're separated from God, they are ignorant. There are things you and I know that we accept as true that other people don't understand, they don't even know. But he goes farther and he says they are hardened. Due to the hardening of their hearts. Hardening of heart in Scripture is a willful, deliberate setting yourself up against something else, saying, no, I will not accept it. This is the world that we live in. This is the culture that we are a part of. It's not a culture with just some minor flaws that just needs a little bit of tweaking. And if we as Christians could just do some good works in the world, it'll all turn around. No, this is a desperate, hopeless situation in and of itself. But Paul's not done. He talks about four main effects. He says, they have lost all sensitivity. The word there is another word that we could, or a word that we could translate another way as, as calloused. As a guitar player, I understand this. If you've ever tried to learn guitar, the first six months are brutal. Your fingers hurt because as they press on the strings and they slide up and down the strings, your fingers get raw, even bloody at times. It takes time to develop A callus. Let me see if this works. Let me see if I can demonstrate this for you. 
Okay, no, no trickery here, right? This is my right index finger. You hear anything? Not really. This is my left index finger. Can you hear that? Let me try it louder. Right index finger. Hear that dull? Left index finger. You hear the tap? Okay, it's not coming through at all. I know Tim's like, you're an idiot, man. This is not working at all. It worked in my office. <laughs> all right, but here's the point. I can actually take a, a straight pen and stick it through the top of this finger because I have no feeling there because I have layer after layer after layer of dead skin. I've done that to protect myself. I mean, theoretically, my finger just sort of did it on its own. So now I can play guitar, sometimes for several hours, and it doesn't hurt, or at least not as much. I'm calloused. It's a body's natural way of protecting itself against something that's going to hurt it. Look at the text. It's saying that people have become calloused, lost all sensitivity to Christ, to spiritual things, to truth. Because as we have become separated, as we are ignorant and hardened, we protect ourselves against the gospel that, quite frankly, we don't want to accept. This is the culture that we live in. Now, you would think that that would make people happy. Okay, I don't have to be hurt now. I'm, I'm protected. Here's my world. Here's God's world. And I'm over here, and that's okay. But he goes on and he says, they've given themselves over to sensuality. We were created to find joy in God. We were created for this joyous, wonderful relationship, but now Paul is saying, we're separated. We're distant. We're calloused. And now we're longing for a joy replacer. And we seek it anywhere we can find. And then he says they are full of greed. I don't believe Paul is adding to the list he's saying. I don't think he's saying we're, we're hardened, we've, we're calloused, we're given over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity, and we're greedy, as if it was something extra. I think he's tying into the concept of greed. The root of greed is you always want more. I think what he's talking about here is as we are callous to Christ, as we are seeking joy elsewhere, we will never find it. The root of greed is you're never satisfied. Even when you get the very thing that your heart desired, you will want more. It's the perpetual lie. I want to shift now from this text to a little bit about our culture. There was a study that was done in 2002 about kind of the progression of individualism in our culture. And it's profound because of the the applications to some things that are going on today. One of the things that the study traced were the seeds of individualism in the American culture. We are a country that was based on, founded by, started by the fact that people wanted to leave where they were, rebel against authority, and come here. Now, that's a good thing, I would say. There were a lot of bad things going on in the world. We wanted freedom of religion. But along with that were these indications, these seeds, these subtle thoughts of, I get to do what I want. And those seeds were there. They were put into our foundational documents. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I get to determine what makes me happy. It's the American way. The study then traced consumer culture since World War II. 
After World War II, America was in such a unique place. The rest of the world, so much of the rest of the world, had their economies decimated, their industries flattened, bombed out. And yet the United States had ramped up production in order to support the war. So here we were in a perfect opportunity to ship our goods around the world. And American families saw their income increase at a rate that hadn't really been seen before. The spread of wealth to the middle class was, was moving out and, and was diverse in its effects. And so opportunities were open up. Things that were previously considered luxury items were now considered normal. A washing machine, a dishwasher, a car, maybe two cars, eventually a television. These were things that previously were reserved for the wealthy, and now it was common. Everybody had to have one because everyone could. Along at the same time, there was a rise in a subculture called the youth. You see, when the soldiers came home, and this is probably news to no one, they settled down and they started having families. Around 1965, as these kids came of age, the baby boomer generation became teenagers. And advertisers woke up. And they said, here's a group, a subculture within the United States of America that has been brought up with the indication that you should get what you want, They have more money in their pockets than most youth had had previously because of the financial situation in the world. And advertisers started directing their advertisements to youth. And culture responded. Churches began youth ministries. Subcultures of youth and and targeted activities to youth began around the culture and in the church. And the youth, as a self-identified or pressured group to be this subculture, rose in prominence. And they were one of the first generations to grow up thinking that this affluence that followed World War II and all the individualistic tendencies that came along with it was completely normal. They didn't know anything else. And we had a perfect storm. These three things, individualism, consumerism, and the rise in youth culture that was saturated with these ideas have led us exactly where we are today. You can see all the indications and things going on in our culture. I want to read you some quotes from this study. Individuals who were supposed to use their freedom to work for the good of others, or individuals were supposed to use their freedom to work for the good of others. Freedom meant the right of people to be free to do what was good for others. As time went by, however, freedom increasingly became the right of people to be free from others. This profoundly affected how people formed relationships, One author commented, if the entire world is made up of individuals, each endowed with the right to be free of others' demands, it becomes hard to forge bonds of attachment to or cooperation with other people, since such bonds would imply obligations that necessarily impinge on one's freedom. This author went on to say, the progress of individualism, it turns out, shades easily into fragmentation. This is a study from 2002, quoting authors from previous, even about 10 years before that. Do you see these things in our culture today? The study quotes another author. Because expressive individualism is too weak to support stable relationships, this ethos really means that the death, or really means the death of marriage. 
It means that children will usually lose the highly personal daily support of a father, both financially and otherwise. It means that society will inherit the emotional scars. It means that the institution of marriage and family will be weakened for future generations who have rarely seen fidelity and permanence modeled by their forebears. And modeling behavior is crucially important. And the author of this 2002 study commented on that quote. I find this really interesting. The author says, while his, that quote I just read, his assessment of the situation may prove to be a bit overdramatic, it does support the idea that individualism is having a profound effect on the family. The author of that 2002 study was extremely naive in that comment. Couldn't, just didn't understand the way things were going. Was just flat out wrong in saying that that was overly dramatic. And you might say, well, Dave, that's, that's really critical. I wrote the 2002 study. This was my thesis paper in seminary. And everything I just quoted from you, for you, was what I wrote and the quotes that I used to graduate from seminary. And that was my statement that this person was over dramatic. I was wrong. I had no clue that in just 14 short years, all of these things would come to pass. The point is, culture saturates us without us even being aware. It seeps into our hearts. It shapes and affects what we consider and accept as normal without us even realizing it. And Paul is saying to the church then, just as we need to hear today, this is your culture. Don't be like them. He's writing to the church. And you know the fascinating thing that really strikes me as I look back on my thesis statement All of these trends that I traced from 1950 to then 2002 and the changes in the family and post-modernity, all of those things happened, especially during the 1950s, at the time that most scholars believe was the heyday of the American church. The percentage of families going to church during that time was higher than we've seen any time since. The influence of Christianity on the culture in many ways was higher than any time. And yet this is the time that radical individualism and the seeds of what we're seeing today grew and flourished. Now it could be that the church just didn't do its job. could be that the culture didn't listen. Quite frankly, I believe it's because as Christians, those things that we denounced in the culture had seeped into our own thinking in ways we didn't even realize. And they still do today. And so we need to hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.17. I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as, and you can put anything in there, the culture does. So what can we do instead? What's the answer? Because I'm not here to beat you up this morning. But we need to hear very clearly the message, take it off. It's not who you are in Christ And so the answer then is to put on Christ. That's the answer. It's not try harder. It's not do better. It's not clean up your act. It's put on Christ. And he starts in verses 20 through 21 saying, you need to know who you are in Christ. Verse 20 of Ephesians 4, that, however, is not the way of life you learned 
when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ, or that is in Jesus. He says, that's not what you were taught. When you heard the gospel, you heard, you accepted something radically different than what the world has to offer. Not only that, but Paul is saying all those things that he just said about the culture, they will never, ever by themselves lead anybody to Jesus Christ. They cannot. Our hope for this world is not for some incremental change that maybe people will wise up, maybe we'll institute more Christian laws, have a more Christian uh, president, have, have more Christian influence. That is not the hope of the world. Because Paul says that's not how you learned about Christ, those things don't lead to Christ. Unless there is a miraculous intervention by the grace of God and a radical communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there cannot be transformation of the person or the culture. People must be saved. They must be brought from death to life. That's the answer. They need to know Jesus Christ. I think it's great that we're trying to do beneficial things in the culture, but if we do that without communicating the absolute truth that God sent His Son to die on the cross in your place and raised from the dead promising eternal life that you can accept as a free gift of grace, if that's not what we're communicating, we're not helping anybody. We're simply keeping them comfortable on their way to their own death. And he says in verse 21, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now that may not seem like that big a deal at first glance. Paul almost never uses the word or the name Jesus all by itself. He usually uses Christ or Jesus Christ. This is a profound departure for Paul. Why? I believe it's because he's tying into the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He's saying that baby born in that manger who is the Son of God, who is Christ, the eternal plan, everything he talked about in chapter 1. But he's saying, watch how that guy grew up. Watch how he lived. Watch what he did. He demonstrated in his earthly life this radical difference. He loved enemies. He touched lepers. He forgave sinners. He was radically countercultural. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, we see in his life this truth lived out. You are not who you were. You are raised to new life. Something radically different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In Christ, we are new people with a new life, new priorities, new meaning, new hope, and a new relationship with God. That must radically alter who we are, how we think, and how we live. So he says we need to know who we are in Christ, and then he's going to go further and says you need to put that on. Every day when you wake up, put on this identity. I am not who I was. That person is dead, buried, gone, saved on the cross of Jesus Christ, raised to a new life. Put on Christ. Verses 22 through 24, he says this. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He shows us several differences between who we were and who we are in Christ. There's a difference in what we are. 
We were taught in regard to our former way of life. That's everything we've talked about in the passage previously. All these ways of the culture. He says that's not who you were. You need to take that off. And look at what he says to put on. Put on who God created you to be in the first place. Created to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on this new self. Created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. It's who we were created to be in the first place, and it's who Christ came to save us to be. He says, put that on. Shed the old sweaty, dirty clothes of the culture. Put on Christ. There's a difference in the truthfulness that we are living. The old person is influenced by desires that are deceitful. Do we accept that? That the worldly ways of thinking... Our natural ways of thinking apart from Christ are lying to us constantly. Do we really accept that? And the contrast there is to put on Christ that is truth, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says there's a difference in the forces that are being at work or are at work in our lives. The old self is being corrupted. The new self is being made new in righteousness and holiness. Paul's saying to all of us, look, here's the old self. And I've said it before, and I think it's so important, especially in our changing culture. Christians, we not only need to accept salvation by faith, we need to accept God's picture of who we are apart from Christ by faith. It's hard. That's the ringing out. We don't like to see that ugliness. But we need to look at that and say, that's me. The fingers here are not being pointed at the culture. They're being pointed at us, Christians. That's who I am apart from Christ, but it's not who I am in Christ. I'm going to put on Christ. How are we going to do this? See, we can't just wake up and try harder. You don't take a rotten apple tree, pull off the rotten apples, and staple fresh, beautiful new apples on it and call it a day. It doesn't work. It's never worked. And it never will. The call of Christians to just work harder, try harder, has never, ever worked. Look at what he says. Verse 23. To be made new. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. This is the call of the Christian. To submit to the work that God is doing in us. To wring out who we were and to put on Christ. It's an act of faith. This means that those acts of obedience I'm going to do not to make myself better, but because I trust that God is already making me better. He is making me new. I will accept that on faith and I will live it out in faith. It's not me accomplishing it. Christ has already done it. My job is to trust it and live it out. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. I don't think a bride would show up at her wedding day without changing her clothes. Because she knows that day is important. It's meaningful. There's more going on than just her showing up at a church and going through a ceremony saying a few words. It's bigger than that. The day is too important. Christians, we need to understand every day is important. This world that is so lost, so separated, so desperate, 
needs to see Jesus Christ in us. That bride wakes up in the morning and she does the work to make herself beautiful. We wake up in the morning and trust the work that Christ is doing in us to make us beautiful so that he gets all the credit. And while we live in this day and age, and we might complain about the culture out there, we might read or look at the news and say, oh my goodness, look at the world. We need to turn inward and say, I need to look at my own heart. Those things that are so drastic in our culture are present in our own heart in even small ways. And quite frankly, I think the devil rejoices just as much over the drastic sin that goes on in the culture as much as he does in the subtle influence in the hearts and minds of Christ's people. He doesn't need the splashy effects. He just needs a subtle pulling away. The rest of Ephesians is about living out this new changed life in the church and individually. And it's going to challenge us. Faith is not easy. Though it's free, it's already accomplished through Christ, the grace that is there, but it's never easy. We have to ask ourselves, will we allow Christ to radically challenge our thinking and our living? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult things. Father, it's, it's easy and it's tempting as Christians to sit around and bemoan the state of our culture and all those things are true. It's frustrating to watch the way our country's going. It's frustrating to watch the way our, our, our families are going, the way our world is going. And yet, God, we don't pick up your word and read it so that we can beat up those people out there. We pick up your word and we read it so we can know you and so that you can change us. God, one of the things that I think is so important, and, and I see Paul talking about this in so many different places, you need to ring us out. And I say that on behalf of all of us, knowing it hurts. It hurts to have ways that we've held on to so tightly drained out of us, to let go of those things and trust your ways are higher. It hurts to have things removed from our life, to have to give up on things because we cannot follow where the world is going. It's hard. It's hard to sometimes stand alone because we're standing up for your truth. And yet, Father, we are called to a higher calling. The world needs to see Christ. And you have given us a mission, called by your grace, equipped by your grace, to live out for the world, Jesus Christ. The only thing, the only person that can truly save and change this world. And so I pray, Father, change our clothes. Help us to put off the old and put on the new. Saturate our minds and renew us. Change the way we think and the way we act. That the world might see Christ in us. In your name we pray. Amen.